Let's open our Bibles this morning to the New Testament book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 8 in our verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter study. Our text this morning will be Acts 8, verses 1 through 8. Our topic, Saul observes that whether the Christians he persecutes live or die, they do it as unto the Lord. The title of our message, Live and Let's Die. Does that mean something to anybody? I don't know. (laughs) Acts 8, 1. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered and went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. Unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Let's pray together. I'll bet there was great joy there, Lord, as people were being set free. We thank you that where your name is spoken, there's the opportunity for freedom from sin, freedom from self, the understanding of eternal life, of living forever in a place of joy and bliss and fulfillment and satisfaction. I pray for those who are here this morning, Lord, who are believers in Jesus Christ that your word would draw us closer to you, that we would desire that our whole lives be given over to you. And if there are any here this morning, Lord, who don't know you, never been born again, they're not Christians, in a personal, intimate relationship with you, that your Holy Spirit would be revealing the beauty and wonder and glory of Jesus Christ, the one whom we sang to, who's worthy of our praise, who also is their Lord and Savior, ready to forgive them their sins and to give them eternal life. Do all these things and more, we pray. And we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Compare Jerusalem and Samaria. In Jerusalem, believers were being persecuted and put into prison. And it says of Jerusalem, there was great lamentation. In Samaria... Gospel preaching was making new believers who were being set free from the prison of disease and demons. And it says of Samaria, there was great joy in that city. The man responsible for all of this really was Saul. He's mentioned in verse 58 of chapter 7 and then twice in the verses we read. He will be dramatically converted to Christianity in chapter 9. We know him better by his Greek name, Paul, and by his Christian office, that of an apostle. While consenting to Stephen's death by stoning and then spearheading the persecution against Christians, Saul got to observe firsthand believers at their very best. No matter what he did to them, they remained true to Jesus Christ. Whether they lived or died, they did it to the glory of God. 
These early observations may have influenced Paul when he wrote to the church at Rome. In Romans 14, verse 8, he said, For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. These early observations may have influenced him too when he wrote to the church at Philippi. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, he wrote, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul had seen the power of these words before he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to put them on parchment. We need to see them too in the dying and living of these first Christians. If they could live and even die to Jesus Christ, then we can and should as well. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, you can die daily to the Lord. And number two, you can live dynamically to the Lord. First of all, in verses one through three, you can die daily to the Lord. Acts 8.1 should be read with Acts 1.8 in mind. In Acts 1.8, Jesus said, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The apostles have been accused of having filled Jerusalem with the teaching of Jesus Christ. We read that in chapter 5, verse 28. Now it was time for the good news about Jesus to spread out to the next phase and go to all Judea and Samaria. Now it's been said often that the apostles were slow to obey the Lord. It's an armchair observation to say that Jesus had to send the persecution of Acts 8.1 in order to get them to obey Acts 1.8. I don't feel that way. I don't even like that way of thinking anymore. If one thing we've learned, these were bold, fearless men who followed the leading of the Lord. These were men who had been imprisoned and warned uh, carefully not to preach in this name, and they went on preaching nonetheless. The fact that persecution was the inspiration to take the gospel further is nothing to criticize. It simply reminds us that God will use anything and everything that touches your life to accomplish His purposes. It's better to see the persecution that scattered the church as an example of the wrath of man being used to praise God. The more Saul stomped on the fire of Christianity, seeking to put it out, the farther its burning embers flew to ignite other fires. And so in chapter 8, verse 1, now Saul was consenting to Stephen's death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. A little background on Saul. He was born in Tarshish in Cilicia, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, he says of himself at one point. He was the son of a Pharisee and a Roman citizen. He was educated in Jerusalem by the great Rabbi Gamaliel and became a devoted Pharisee. Measured by the law, his life was blameless. He kept outwardly the law of God. He was one of the most promising young Pharisees in Jerusalem, well on his way to becoming a great leader for the Jewish faith. His zeal for the law was displayed most vividly in his persecution of the church, which he went about with real style, if you'll pardon my using that word. 
From a human vantage point, you'd say that the believers had to flee Jerusalem. Luke, however, describes them as being scattered. It can be translated sown or distributed and is used of a sower with seed. Jesus was sowing them as seed into the world he came to save. And so from, from a worldly perspective, they were being scattered, thrown out of town because of persecution. From a Christian perspective, from heaven's perspective, Jesus decided to use persecution to scatter them so that they could spread the gospel. We've talked about this many times, but you too should see yourself as having been sown by Jesus right where you are. Some of you might be in a time of transition. Others might even be in a place of sin, and and you have to temper what I'm going to say. But generally speaking, most of us have been sown into the place uh, where we're at, and it's by God's design. It probably wasn't on account of persecution, but the Lord has many means of leading us. The important thing is to realize this and then to grow and bear fruit right where you are today. We're also told in verse 1 that the apostles remained in Jerusalem. Why? Well, we're not told. I believe it was God's leading for them to remain there. It was simply God's will. These were men of prayer. In fact, they, they refused to leave the word of God in prayer to take care of certain needs. And so we know that they were men of prayer and the word. And as this persecution broke out and as believers were being scattered, we have to know that with correct motives, they were led to stay in Jerusalem. And this is important because a lot of times as you grow in the Lord, hopefully and mature in the Lord, there are going to be decisions that you make whose basis is the leading of God. You have prayed about it. You have sought Scripture, maybe got counsel. There may be a lot of other means to the end of knowing that God is leading you to stay, to go, to go left or right, whatever it might be in your particular situation. Sometimes people question your decision. Why did you make that decision? We have a tendency to make the decision based on the leading of God, then see some of the results of it or see some of the wisdom of it, and then act as if that's why we made the decision. Oh, because this and this or this person or that person. And, and, and then you can be challenged. Well, wait a minute. What if this happened or that? And we get off track. Sometimes the decision is, hey, this is the way God is leading. And if it's not some whacked out, crazy, sinful thing, you know, I mean, people always say, well, God made me do it. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the, the, the intimate relationship that we have with the Lord through Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit giving us direction for our life. That's the reason. And just tell people, hey, I, this is how the Lord is leading me. I see some results of it. I see some things happening. But you can't always go by results because sometimes God leads you and the results aren't what you had thought. Later in his career, Paul the Apostle will be warned by a a flamboyant prophet that if he goes to Jerusalem, he'll be arrested, put in chains, and the church begs him not to go, and he says, of course I'm going to go. That's where God is leading me to go, and he had a real confidence in, in that leading. We'll see when we get there that commentators, like my air quotes, commentators, criticized Paul as not being, he, he didn't use wisdom. God was warning him. No, God wasn't warning him. God was telling the church what was going to happen to Paul, whom he was leading to go down to uh, Jerusalem. And so 
the leading of the Lord, very important. And so these men, lots of speculation, but basically they prayed about it, said, we're, we're going to stay in Jerusalem. And again, bold, fearless men in the heart of the storm. Verse 2, and devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. The devout men were probably Jews who felt that Stephen's stoning was a horrible injustice. They're probably not Christians. I say that because his funeral follows the Jewish tradition of making great lamentation over the dead. When we went through the Gospels, once or twice we mentioned to you how that the Jews had uh, professional mourners that they would hire for their funeral services. Honey, is everything lined up for the funeral tomorrow? I forgot to call the mourners. And so you'd call, and people who didn't even know the deceased would show up and mourn and wail and weep. And, and, and it was kind of like today sometimes, and I, I hope I can say this without criticizing anybody, but a lot of times, you know, people spend tens of thousands of dollars on a casket as if it shows the, the love that we had for that person because they have the most expensive casket that money can buy. It drives itself, you know, kind of a thing. And there's some really expensive caskets. If you want to do that, that's fine. But it, it's not necessarily an expression of love any more so than hiring mourners who didn't know the person, you know, uh, are, are going to, hey, what was your relation to the deceased? Who? I'm just, I'm a mourner. Here's my card. Call, have, <laughs> have your family call me when you croak, you know. And... Uh, so anyway, so these guys are just making a big lamentation. Christians are to sorrow when a believer dies, but not as those who are without hope. And this is always a, a balance. Of course we're sad when loved ones are gone. Uh, and, and of course there's tears and grieving. God has made us that way. And we need to grieve and all. But we have that hope. That we know where that person is. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And, and we remember that. Stephen set the tone when he peacefully committed his spirit to Jesus while being pelted with stones. Saul, looking on, saw firsthand the power of the words he would write later, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's, and to live is Christ, but to die is gain. The Jews were lamenting Stephen's death. Really, they ought to have been lamenting for themselves. Their leaders had rejected and killed their Messiah and the world's Savior. They had rejected and were killing the ambassadors of their Messiah and the world's Savior. It would not fare well with them as a nation in the long run. Soon it would be they who were being scattered throughout the entire world, not to evangelize it, but to suffer God's discipline for nearly 2,000 years until He would regather them to their promised land in the end times. Verse 3, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. The word havoc describes the activity of a wild beast tearing into its prey. Every now and then there's a news story in some of these remote or not so remote areas where, you know, people hear a noise downstairs and they go and some wild animal has broken into their house, you know, coming in because of the drought conditions for food. There's a deer, four, you know, 12-point deer in their kitchen, you know, or a bear is, or a raccoon is tearing up their cereal or something like that, and, and they catch it on their cell phone and it makes Fox News. 
And so that's the idea, only in a very terrible, tragic way. This wasn't like a knock on the door, hi, are you Gene Pensiero? Yes, I have a warrant for your arrest. Uh, turn around, you know, cuffs on, watch your head as you get into the patrol car. I mean, this is like you're home this afternoon and it's Mother's Day and somebody kicks in the door and they grab the husband and rough him up and throw him around, drag him out, and you never see him again because he's thrown into prison. The kids are beaten. The wife is beaten. They spoil and, and defile all of your goods. You want to be a Christian? Here, take that. There, see what it's like to be a Christian. The Jews won't help you. The Romans won't help you. You're on your own if you want to vote. Where's Jesus now, Christian? It, this is a brutal, brutal persecution. Paul writes about it autobiographically many times. And think of the Apostle Paul. It's, we'll see later on the, the disciples were a little hesitant to believe that he had really become a Christian. The persecution was so bad. And imagine his life. Imagine, though the joy of the Lord with him, imagine going back to Jerusalem and seeing and praying with and knowing the families that he had ruined the husbands and wives he had separated, the children that he had overseen the beatings of and those kinds of things. This is something that dramatically affected him in his life and ministry. And so he wreaked havoc on the Christians. How do you think the believers reacted? Every indication is that they modeled the same quiet grace in living through persecution that Stephen did in dying as a result of it. For them to live was Christ. And so they lived as unto the Lord. I, I, I imagine that there were many scenes where, uh, as believers were being persecuted in this way, their faces too shone like Stephen's did, where they called upon Jesus also to forgive their persecutors. Uh, you can't beat people like this. You can hurt them physically, but you can't beat them. The treatment of these early believers is a reminder to us that we die daily to ourselves as we walk with the Lord. Our lives no longer belong to us. Jesus has bought us out from slavery to sin and death. He has set us free spiritually. We are strangers and pilgrims now in a foreign land on our way home to heaven. Along the way, we die a little more each day in our discipleship. We bear our cross as Jesus bore his. The Lord may choose to bless us, or he may determine that some sort of buffetings would best serve us. Jake touched on it in the passage to ponder this morning. All of us have a different walk at a different pace with different scenery and those kinds of things. Our part is to learn in whatever situation or state we are in to be content. Whatever situation, whatever state, whether California or Montana, to learn to be content. I just want to bring it, make it real, brother. Whether we're abounding or whether we're being abased. Seemed funnier when I thought about it. But anyway, <laughs> you have been sown right where you are. You're to live there by dying to yourself and living for Jesus. We've seen before that the word martyr, the root of it is the word witness. A martyr is just a witness who goes all the way. And, and so Stephen is... Is, is showing us what all of us do on a daily basis, willing to go all the way, along the way, dying to self no matter what's happening around us. Which brings us to our second point. How do you do that? Well, you can live dynamically to the Lord. Seeds appear dead, but they are not. 
Back in 2002, botanists were excited when 500-year-old lotus seeds from a Chinese lake bed sprouted. Doesn't take much to get a botanist going, but, you know, that'll do it. Could you just see those guys trembling in the laboratory, you know? Oh, there's a seed, you know, and stuff. And every day with little magnifying glasses, I think I see a sprout. No, it's just the hair from my beard. No, it's a sprout. 500-year-old seeds, they appear dead, but they sprout. The believers, now catch this. I like this. The believers appeared dead from a worldly perspective. Stephen, of course, was dead. But even the believers who were alive but being persecuted, they were losing all of the things we would normally associate with a good life. Their family, their friends, their possessions, even their sense of belonging, as it were, because they, they certainly were already hated as Jews by the Romans, and the Jews now hated them as completed Jews, as Christians. And so the things that make for life were all dead to them, removed from them. But they contained life. The more dead they seemed, the more alive they became. And wherever they went, they sprouted. And so in verse 4, therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Now preaching the word is accurate, but it's a little bit too formal. It's how we would describe their activity, but it's not like they went out with a pulpit kit, you know, a portable pulpit. What do you got there? A portable pulpit, you know, and started preaching on street. Sometimes, yes, but really what it is is they just simply talked about Jesus and introduced him to the people they encountered. And this was, I don't want to say it was easy. It wasn't easy, but there's, God had a mechanism built into it because all of a sudden, uh, you know, even here in Hanford, sometimes I'll say, hey, you know, what do you do in Hanford? What brought you to Hanford? Those kinds of things. Here's a guy comes into town or, you know, is in your little community. Hey, where did you come from? I just came from Jerusalem. What are you doing up here? Well, my family was torn apart. Uh, my husband was thrown into jail, and now here I am with the kids trying to make a new life for myself, a little bit farther from the eye of the tornado down. Well, really, what's, what's or hurricane? What's going on down there? Well, let me tell you about Jesus Christ. I'm a Christian, and because I believe that Jesus is our Messiah who rose from the dead, uh, they're killing us down there for it. And so there was kind of a, a, just a supernaturally natural way of sharing the word. Verse 5, then Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and he preached Christ to them. Now, some of you contacted me this week to let me know that archaeologists had found King Herod's tomb. I think it's cute that we all care about stuff like that. I, did, I was really excited. And, and, uh, you know, and anything you find in the news that you think is, is cool, just send it to me. I don't always use it, but I, you know, it's, it's good stuff. And so I thank you for that. And it was interesting this week. Uh, it's not really a prophetic find, but it is interesting because King Herod is responsible for the rebuilding of Samaria during Bible times. He was a great builder, great architect. Uh, he's also a murderer and, uh, you know, a mass murderer, killing infants and babies and his own family. But he, he could put up a pretty good building. And... Uh, and history remembers him for his building, and he rebuilt Samaria where Philip was. Second Kings records the account of the Assyrian invasion of the northern kingdom of Israel. The ten tribes were carried away. The Assyrians resettled the area with people from 
other conquered uh, regions. The Jews who remained intermarried with those people, producing uh, a, a group of people, the Samaritans, despised by their southern Jewish brothers and sisters for being a half-breed kind of a race, called half-breeds and dogs. Jews and Samaritans had no dealings with one another. Samaritans eventually built their own temple on Mount Gerizim with its own rites and rituals and sacrifices as a rival temple to the one at Jerusalem. I tell you all that to let you know that it was no small thing that Philip preached Christ to Samaritans. It speaks volumes about the radical changes the gospel brings to a person's life at the most fundamental levels. If you are still holding on to prejudices and biases, then you'd better repent of them because there's no place for them in the Christian heart. Verse 6, and the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of the many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. Stephen had been described as performing wonders and signs among the people. Now you see Philip doing the same. Stephen and Philip were not apostles. They were ordinary, everyday believers whom God chose to empower with these abilities. Instead of arguing that God does not want to do these things today, let's just go forth and preach the word and then see what follows that preaching. Maybe I'm a little bit more sensitive to this because I do reading and, you know, background reading and commentaries and stuff that you're not able to do. doesn't make me smarter, but, you know, you'd do it if you could, but you have real jobs. And so, uh, and, and a commentator spends so much effort and energy every time one of these verses comes up trying to prove why God doesn't do these things anymore. So don't expect them. And if, some, if they happen, it's an anomaly uh, or it's demonic and, you know, those kind. And it, it just, I just don't get it. Just preach the Word of God and whatever God wants to happen will happen. If something starts to happen, just make sure that it's biblical, that it has a biblical precedent. And so if you're preaching and all of a sudden a bunch of people start getting healed in the name of Jesus Christ, demons start coming out of people, Cool. God's following the preaching of the word with signs and wonders. If you're preaching and a bunch of people in the front row start laughing like hyenas and falling on the ground, uncool, not biblical, eh, error, error. And, and so what's the big deal? I mean, it just you judge it according to the word of God. Uh, so let's just do what we're supposed to do and distribute the word scattered where we go and see what the Lord wants to do with it. Philip preached the word. I wonder if as an introduction he discussed the Lord's visit to the well and the conversation Jesus had had with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. It would have been an easy introduction to a message about Jesus. Or maybe Philip talked about the two apostles who once wanted to call fire down from heaven upon the Samaritans, but Jesus told them what spirit they were really of. Or maybe he related to them the parable of who? the Good Samaritan, and, and was able to springboard from that into a discussion of who Jesus was. Uh, I only mention that because he, whatever he did, he probably met them right where they were at. 
in a way that would, would reveal Christ to them. We, we always have to be a little bit sensitive to our audience uh, and to the kind of people, generally speaking, that we're talking to. Uh, and, and you'll see this in the book of Acts. Paul preached completely differently to the Jews than he did to the Gentiles. To the Jews, here's the word, here's what happened in the Old Testament, here's how Jesus fulfilled it, et cetera, et cetera. To the Gentiles, bringing in things of their culture, using creation and conscience more to talk about who Jesus was. And so no matter who you're talking to, you can talk about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is not a cultural phenomenon. As I've told you many times, Christianity did not begin in the first century with Jesus Christ and these guys. It began before the world was created. It was preached in the Garden of Eden before there were any cultures or religions that came along and corrupted our thinking. Christianity was Christ and His salvation. So it's, it's applicable to every culture and every situation, but people come to Christ differently because of their own personal experience. And so know who it is you're talking to and, and ask the Lord to help you uh, introduce them to Christ in a way that makes sense to them. Jesus set the Samaritans free from disease and demons. He did it then. He can do it now. He is doing it now in some parts of the world. Our part is to bring the word to people. Signs and wonders follow as the Lord sees fit. And that's, it's always signs and wonders following. We can get discouraged and not see signs and wonders and try and whip them up. Uh, just that's not what we're supposed to do. As much as we might like to see signs and wonders, more miracles, more healings, we're to bring the Word of God. And if people aren't excited about the Word of God, if there's no real revival in, in people's hearts, signs and wonders are not going to do it. And so those have to follow the preaching of the Word, which brings its own miracle changes in the lives of people. Verse 8 there was great joy in that city. I bet there was. People who had wasted their living on doctors trying to diagnose diseases, people who were demon-possessed. Wow, what's that all about? I mean, that's got to hurt. You know, I mean, that's nasty. And, and here was Philip, a guy from the neighborhood in Jerusalem. You know, what, what's your qualification? Uh, I was a waiter. Tuesday was my day to give uh, soup to the widows. Oh, really? And now demons obey you. No, they don't obey me, but they respond to the name of Jesus Christ. And the Lord is here to heal and to set free. I'm sure there was great joy. Sometimes as Christians, we act as if non-believers are unhappy. I want to talk about joy and happiness for a minute. Unbelievers are, or non-believers are not necessarily unhappy. I know a lot of happy unbelievers. Uh, they, and so if you go to a non-believer and say, hey, you're really unhappy without God. No, I'm not. Hey, my, uh, my dad just had a birthday. Uh, my mom, I think he's, I always forget, he's so old I can't remember anymore. I mean, he's in his late 80s. I think he's 87. My mom is 87 or 88. And uh, they've been married their whole life. I never once thought ever that they would get a divorce. I mean, that's something that never, I mean, all the other weird things that ever went on in my life, I never once 
ever thought that my parents would ever get a divorce, and they didn't. And I'm not saying they're happy, 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 but they're happier in their marriage than most Christians because a high percentage of Christians apparently are unhappy and getting divorced. And so you can't say that people in the world are always unhappy. Sometimes they're happy and that's a, that's a, a reason they don't come to God because they, what can God add to my life? I've got, uh, you know, we're married, we've got children, I have a great career, I retired, I'm in my motorhome. I mean, you know, it's, it's just, life's been good. Maybe there's something out there. If there is, I've been blessed already, so I'll be blessed then. And so don't be telling people they're not happy. Why fight that battle? Now, it is true they don't have joy. They can't have joy because joy, by definition, is produced by the indwelling Holy Spirit. It is a fruit of the Spirit. They can call something joy, but it's not joy. And, and the, the, the reality is you were created to know God and to have fellowship with God, and you can be happy but fall short of being satisfied and fulfilled and if you fall short, you're going to fall far short because the Bible says it's appointed unto men once to die and after this comes judgment. And so think about what you're saying to people sometimes. Don't, there's no reason to tell people they're unhappy. But you can talk to them about the fact that somewhere in their heart there is a nagging suspicion that there is a God who created them and knows them and wants to bring them into a relationship with them and use that as your basis. And so these Samaritans had great joy because they were coming to know Christ. Philip represents an average, everyday, ordinary Christian. He got saved, he walked with the Lord, and it qualified him to be chosen to serve tables. Continued to walk with the Lord, found himself scattered by persecution to a region he previously would have avoided at all costs. Think about that. Meditate on that later on today. Here's Philip. Hey, I'm saved. I'm a deacon in the first church. Wow, this is fantastic. Oh, I don't want to be persecuted. What's this persecution nonsense? I don't want to leave Jerusalem. I'm a deacon. Uh, you know, I, I got to go out into Samaria. What's with that? We hate the Samaritans. I mean, this is not good duty. But he just walking along, whether he lived, he lived to the Lord. Whether he had to die to himself, he did it unto the Lord. Realizing that it was the Lord himself who had sown him there, Philip served them the word. And Jesus chose to accompany it with signs and wonders and multiple conversions. You get the idea that Philip would have learned to be content even if the harvest was small or instead of a harvest, there was a havoc. See, those were the two choices at the time. Jerusalem, havoc. Samaria, harvest. And either one, in a sense, I want to say they didn't matter from a personal standpoint in terms of how you experienced the Lord. One hurt more than the other. One kind of was more exciting, perhaps, than the other. But at the heart of it were these Christians who glowed with joy for Jesus Christ. Philip and Stephen were essentially the same could have been Philip who had been the first martyr and Stephen the first missionary. Do you, do you ever get that sense? They picked these seven guys uh, and then all of a sudden Stephen becomes the church's first martyr. Could have been Philip. It, it, see, the, God didn't look down and say, 
We gotta get Stephen saved because he's the only guy that could really, I mean, look at the qualities in his life. Everybody else is gonna fail and blow it. I need him. No, I mean, any of these guys could have been in any of these positions because it was Jesus living his life through them and they just happened to be the vessels. They lived dynamically. They were baptized with and then they went on being filled with God the Holy Spirit. And so should we live dynamically. We need first to be baptized with the Spirit and then go on being filled with Him. Now, Jesus said in the book of Acts, you would receive the baptism with the Holy Spirit. That means it's a promise and it's an unconditional promise. He said, Gene, you're you, you can receive the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Nothing I need to do in a sense because it's a promise. Later on, Saul, when he's the Apostle Paul, is going to command us to go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. If he can command me to do it, then it must be something I can either do or not do. In other words, it is a condition that I have to meet. And so when we talk about the baptism with the Holy Spirit, we're talking, and the filling of the Holy Spirit, we're talking about two separate experiences that we can have. Here's what I believe is taught in Scripture. There is a one-time baptism with the Holy Spirit that is available to every believer. All believers are also commanded to be filled with the Spirit and to go on being filled as they yield to His influence and cooperate with His work in their lives. You are baptized in the Spirit when sometime in your Christian walk you realize and receive by faith the promise that God the Holy Spirit has empowered you to be His witness. Now, that may not sound like very much. I, probably we're sitting here thinking, okay, well, yeah, I realize that. I, I've, you know, filled with the Spirit, empowered to be His witness. But it really makes a big difference in how we approach life. For example, do you really believe that you've been sown by the Lord right where you are at? Perhaps you do, and I believe most of you do. But it's been my experience that many believers do not have that assessment of life and their Christian walk. They might be in a marriage or in a job or in a time of suffering that they will try everything to escape. In the case of marriage, since we've been harsh on marriage this morning, I'll continue. In the case of marriage, many believers go so far as to sin by procuring non-biblical divorces. A person baptized with the Holy Spirit who's realized that and, and received that promise understands that the Lord has empowered them to be His witness in those very situations. And so they're not looking to get into a situation better for them. They're looking for how the situation they're in can reveal Christ to others. And this essentially is one aspect of this baptism with the Spirit. In other words, do I realize that right where I am, I have the power to be His witness? And the answer in a lot of lives is no, I don't really realize that. Or I'm going to realize it later when I'm not in this situation, but in another situation. You can't imagine these guys thinking that way at all, Stephen and Philip I mean, these guys, I mean, they, they certainly didn't go out looking for trouble. But whatever came their way, whether it was, you know, harvest or havoc, I'm a Christian. 
Lord, how do you want me to respond to this? How can I witness for you? S Stephen went all the way as a witness and was a martyr. He gave his life entirely at that moment. But the point of the message this morning is that we are going part of the way each day, willing to give our lives if called upon, in the meantime, willing to die in the situation that we're in so that Christ might be magnified in it. We need that realization, that baptizing with the Holy Spirit so that we know that God in His sovereignty is working in our midst and that all things are working together for good because we love Him and are the called according to His purpose and that we can shine and glow right where we're at. Then we need to spend time with Jesus and especially with His Word and go on being filled with the Holy Spirit to produce fruit. We can realize that having been baptized with the Holy Spirit, but then still struggle on a day-to-day -day basis with the realities of our suffering or the situation that we find ourselves in. I mean, the fact that we realize that we're God's witness empowered it doesn't change the fact that life can be very, very hard and tragic. Things happen that, that challenge us. And so we immerse ourselves in the Word of God and in our walk with the Lord so that we can be renewed and refreshed in this filling of the Holy Spirit to bring forth the fruit that is called for in each of those situations. God is a big God. He's big enough to know right where you're at and to fill you right where you're at. You and I, we just need to desire it. We need to recognize it. We need to realize it. We need to receive it. We need to be Stephen if it's havoc. We need to be ready to be Philip if it's harvest. And there's everything in between, isn't it? I mean, those are kind of extremes, aren't they? Havoc, harvest. There's another H word that would be in the middle, but I'm just making this up as I go. So anyway, that's, that's what we're talking about this morning. And it's my prayer for my heart and my life that I, having been baptized with the Spirit, would go on being filled with the Spirit. If anyone here this morning, first of all, is a Christian and you don't feel like you've ever really been baptized with the Holy Spirit, you, and you're realizing all of a sudden, yeah, that's it, then receive that this morning. And all of us, in the Word, with the Lord, so that He can go on filling us and filling us and filling us. Maybe you're not a Christian this morning. It's possible that one or two or maybe more of you don't know the Lord at all. It's, uh, God is big enough to have brought you here this morning to hear the gospel, the good news that God himself came as a man, rose from the dead, and lives to offer you life. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for these things. They are glorious, Lord. None of us... Uh, well, all of us would like to be Stephen without really being Stephen, Lord. I think that's safe to say. There's, there's a, a glory to martyrdom, not in and of itself, but, but just knowing, Lord, that, that our life is yours, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. What's hard for us, Lord, is not even being Philip's. I mean, if, if, if we were like Philip and harvest was happening all around us, people were getting saved, demons were rushing out of people, people paralyzed were jumping up and down, that would be wonderful too. We somehow live in, in a, a, the middle of those things most often. And, and man, is it hard in that middle, Lord. Difficult. 
where we, we're not struggling with such deep theological issues as we are just the daily grind of life. Marriages and jobs and careers and school and all of those kinds of things that, that are geared towards wearing us down. Personal sufferings, Lord, diseases, demonic oppressions, every kind of weird thing. Lord, this morning I pray that we would take a step back and make sure that we have been baptized with your Holy Spirit. That we honestly realize, Lord, that in any of those situations, you have empowered us to be your witnesses. And that it's your glory that we're interested in and not our own. And I pray for my brothers and sisters that if they have never had that realization, that they would have it now and ask you, Lord, to do that work in their life that we would commit, Lord, too, to redoubling our efforts to know you through your word and therefore be filled with your spirit. Thank you, Lord, for the work that you're doing and desire to do. And Lord, I do want to uh, give unbelievers an opportunity this morning to respond to just your kindness, Lord, which leads men to repentance, the Bible says. Holy Spirit, be in this place. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have never been born again, we want to give you an opportunity to reach out to the Lord and to have Him save you. Here's, here's one way of looking at it. The Bible says that God is perfect. And to show us his perfection, God gave us his law summarized in the Ten Commandments. Even if you're not very religious, you have some understanding of some of the things in the Ten Commandments. Let's just take one. It's a commandment that says that you should not commit adultery. Jesus came along and he said that that's great, but what God really meant was that you shouldn't even have lust in your heart towards another person. And that if you've ever had lust in your heart, ever lusted towards somebody sexually, then you're an adulterer. And if you're an adulterer, you can't go to heaven. You've broken God's law. And the only thing you can do having broken God's law is die and die eternally. Unless God himself comes in human flesh and takes your place and dies in your place for your having broken his law and then he can forgive you and give you eternal life and so that's what we're talking about this morning you're a lawbreaker but God has fulfilled the requirements of the law so that you don't have to face the death sentence and that you can live forever and so we're going to sing just briefly to prepare our hearts before the Lord. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to reach out to the Lord by raising your hand and saying, yes, I want to know the Lord this morning. I want him to save me so that I can go to heaven and live forever with Jesus Christ. So let's sing. Christians, quietly sing or pray. And we'll ask the Holy Spirit to do his work.
morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, never been born again, and ask you to raise your hand, just reach out to God. Raise your hand so that we can acknowledge that you want to know Christ as your Savior, anyone at all, as we close our service this morning. The Lord portrays himself in Scripture as reaching out to save you, to pull you out of a deep pit of sin and self. It's a rescue effort that fails only because we don't respond to it. God is willing, able to rescue us, but we don't reach out to him. So are you here this morning? You're not a Christian. We're not asking you to join our church or to do anything other than meet the creator of the universe in Jesus Christ by his spirit. Raise your hand if you want to know Christ. Praise the Lord. Now, Father, we thank you for the work of your spirit. We know that your word, Lord, is a mighty thing, breaker of hearts, piercer, Lord, of, of thoughts. And I pray that the seeds that have been sown, Lord, that they would burst forth in the hearts of unbelievers, but also in our hearts as well, Lord, that we would desire, we would desire at least that it could be said of us for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. Amen. All right, let's stand together. Some of the guys will be up front to pray with you this morning. Maybe you're here and you really want to get to know Jesus Christ. You want to talk to somebody more about it. That's fine. Come on down. We'll give you some literature. If you're new, never been to Calvary Hanford before, or you've been coming for a short time and never got a first contact welcome packet, we have some of those. It's got a bunch of great stuff, including free drink coupon uh, for the cafe. If you've been here for six years, don't lie about it. And get your free drink. Uh, may God bless and keep you. Grab a bottle on the way out. It's how we celebrate Mother's Day and Father's Day. In between that time, uh, we're serving the Lord by giving to that worthy cause. May God bless and keep you. Amen.